Welcome to the most enchanted podcast in all the realms. I'm Lynn. I'm Elisa. And I'm Chell. Together, we are the, the Narrators, Narrators 3. Three. And this is Once Upon a Rewatch, where all plot devices come with a price. Welcome to Once Upon a Rewatch, Season 3, Episode 11, Going Home. The air date for this episode was December 15th, 2013. The writers were the Kitsowitz, and the director was Ralph Hemmaker. The title card features Emma's car with a green curse cloud background. We begin in Storybrooke, where Pan, still in Henry's body, begins to dump the ingredients for the dark curse into the wishing well. Felix compliments Pan on successfully deceiving Regina before inquiring if this new curse will kill the denizens of Storybrooke. Worse, Pan replies, they'll be slaves to this new land we're making with no idea who they once were. Death is final. Their suffering will be eternal. This edgelord speech coming out of Jared Gilmore is such a good moment. Like, it should feel strange. It feels a little strange, but you're also like, shit, son, you're kind of terrifying. But he looks so cute. <laughs> it's like watching a tiny little kitten hiss, you know, like, like hiss at like. Their yeah. little comical spray bottle hiccup hiss that they do. Yes. <laughs> And yes. you're just like, oh, sweetie. You're like, oh, you're so cute. Bless your heart. Meanwhile, outside of Regina's vault, Mr. Gold informs everyone that while Pan's curse will be hellish, it can indeed be undone by Regina since she is the caster of the original curse. We quickly cut back to Panry, who attests that the curse Regina enacted is nothing but child's play compared to what he has in mind. Felix is impressed, stating that Peter Pan never fails. Returning to the group discussion, Regina learns that to undo Pan's curse, she must destroy the scroll. However, Mr. Gold warns her that this will undo both curses and doing so will have a steep price to pay. Instead of taking the scroll back by force, Mr. Gold suggests they bring Pan to him with a spell which will return Henry and Pan to their respective bodies. We evil Pan still has one last ingredient to contribute to the dark curse which is the heart of the thing he loves most. Felix believes he intends to procure Mr. Gold's heart, but little Pan explains that he never loved his son, and besides, love isn't only romantic or familial, it can entail loyalty or friendship. Felix quickly figures out that fake Henry is talking about him. Don't be afraid, be flattered. Though Felix is quick to protest, he can ultimately do nothing as his leader rips his heart out and crushes it into the wishing well. Ugh, barf. Barf everywhere. <laughs> I just, I hate that I called Felix being the thing Pan loves the most. Did you do Gross. that unironically? Like, you you totally forgot that that was what... Oh, like, yeah, no, we've gotten to the point in the series where I barely remember what happens because I've okay. only watched it maybe once, and it was while it was actually airing in 2013. So, like... I didn't remember how this went down at all. I just was like, oh, it'd be really gross if it's Felix and Felix is the thing he loves the most. That'd be gross. That'd be nasty. And then it got to this episode. I was like, oh, I hate that I'm right. Barf. <laughs> yeah. Man, evil Pan Henry Jared is is properly menacing, though. I loved the like, 
don't be afraid be flattered I <laughs> he's know. just like jared did great in this episode because he didn't even <laughs> say it menacingly he said it like very jovially he's like don't be afraid be flattered like yeah, like he's giving genuine. You a pep- it's yeah like, it's like very a pep like, talk you should be glad that i actually care about you mm-hmm. <laughs> like isn't that nice <laughs> all right p felix I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Glad he's gone. I fucking hated that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Returning to the group discussion, tall, good Henry recognizes that if the body switch works, he will have the scroll in his possession. Regina doesn't believe even someone as powerful as Mr. Gold has the magic necessary to perform the switch. But Mr. Gold states that it is possible with the proper tools. At this, Tinkerbell suggests using the Black Fairy's wand. She explains that the Black Fairy was the most powerful fairy skilled in the dark arts, but the Blue Fairy banished her and took her wand. The Shadow, who has overheard all of this, follows David, Hook, Neil, and Tinkerbell as they go to the convent to find the Black Fairy's wand. At the Wishing Well, small, evil Henry pulverizes Felix's heart into complete ash and watches with satisfaction as a green smoke rapidly rises out to the surface. In a flashback to the Enchanted Forest prior to the casting of the Dark Cursed, a heavily pregnant Snow White anxiously asks the Blue Fairy about what will happen to them if the wardrobe doesn't work. Prince Charming stands by and listens in on the conversation exchange. The Blue Fairy states that the curse will transport them to a new land where they will all lose their memories and become slaves to the evil queen's darkest desires. (laughs) Title of your next fanfic. Saying everyone will become a slave to Regina's darkest desires is pretty fucking dramatic, considering people just like ended up in retail or being school teachers. I mean, a couple of them got really fucked. The majority of them, though, were like, I own a diner now. Yeah, oh, like, fucking insidious that is. I work at a pharmacy. Yeah, most are pretty mundane, including Mary Margaret. Her, like, her curse. Her most like, hated enemy. Like, she was not, she didn't have love, but she had a nice life as a teacher. Like, it was pretty pleasant. Like, the only folks who had a fate in her world that was, like, next level fucked up was Graham, Belle, and Maleficent. Like, even David just got to miss it all at least and run off into the forest with his bare ass yeah (laughs) (laughs) this is all the more reason the blue fairy stresses that they must have faith that the savior will save them given the circumstances of the curse's effects wiping out their memories snow white wants to know how the savior will understand that she needs to save them wistfully the blue fairy knows for certain that one day when the time is right the savior will learn their story Snow White is perplexed by the term story. Even the Blue Fairy doesn't know exactly what will happen, but is assured that she herself has something they all need right now, hope. She asks Snow White to have faith and takes her leave out of the castle. The look of pure, you are bullshit, Snow White gives to the fucking Blue Fairy when she says she has the one thing they need, hope, is priceless, like chef's kiss, side glare. It's a very, like, this bitch face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Instead of being comforted by these words, Snow White is left more unsure than ever, though Prince Charming thinks they have no other choice but to believe in the Blue Fairy. Snow White looks longingly at the unicorn mobile that would have hung above their daughter's crib, and now these plans will never come to fruition. Her husband gently assesses that they should listen to the Blue Fairy and have hope of prevailing. 
She relates her crushed dreams of them ever being a family and raising their daughter due to the curse. He believes that their prospects are still unknown, while Snow can't see how there is anything good in their future. Charming attests that the future isn't always bad, and life is full of twists and turns. He sees the curse as just another turn in life. Snow is still clinging to the idea of their happy ending, which is to raise their child together as a family, and now it's gone. As an alternative, Charming helps her to see that though that specific future is gone, it doesn't mean they can't have a different and unexpected one. She decides to choose hope and believe in it. In present-day Storybrooke, at the pawn shop, Mary Margaret delicately holds one of the glass unicorns in her hand as she laments that it would have been hanging over baby Emma's crib. The shot of Mary Margaret looking at the unicorn was beautiful. Like her eyes say so much about just everything she's been through and like what it means to her. And I, I love the character of Snow White so much. I love her. Too good for this place. She's so lovely. Emma notices her mother and says she likes the unicorns and they both smile at the thought. And I really love that line because here we have tough as nails Emma hardened by a lifetime in the foster care system and through all of this chaos and drama, she is still finding the right words in the gentlest tone to take a moment and let her mom know that she cares and that their bond is strengthening even throughout this shit going on. Yeah, it's a really lovely moment. Mm -hmm. Mary Margaret remembers it was the hardest thing to part with Emma once the curse hit and even now often wonders what things would be like if they hadn't come to that decision. Emma agrees that she thinks the same with Henry. Mary Margaret knows Emma was giving Henry his best chance in life. Still, Emma knows things would have been very different had she kept him and they could have had a normal life together in Boston or someplace else. That isn't Boston. (laughs) Everywhere is Boston. Everywhere is Boston. In the end, Emma recognizes this what-if future was never meant to be. Emma then walks over to tall, good Henry, sitting between a comforting Belle and Regina. Emma asks how Henry is doing, to which he shows eagerness to return to his original body. (laughs) It's probably all like, this one already went through puberty. It's really weird. (laughs) It has stuff going on I do not understand. I don't understand. I need a book. Like, I don't, I do not get this. (laughs) I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. Behind the counter, Mr. Gold reassures his grandson that it won't be much longer. Casually, he flips through a page in a spell book and then closes the book. He is sure that once they have the wand, everything will go as planned. Meanwhile, Hook, Tink, Neil, and David arrive as the fairies turned nuns are holding watch over the late Mother Superior. And I bet they are all trying to figure out the theme for the party that they're going to throw. Tropical or just go all out like rave style with a foam party? Well, I mean, they are fairies. I'm going to say rave. Yeah. Yeah. I think a disco ball and maybe some black light. Maybe just basically Burning Man. (laughs) (laughs) The quartet asks the nuns for the wand, who react in fear of the reference. Tinkerbell promises that whatever is coming to town is far worse than the wand itself. Suddenly, they are interrupted by the presence of the shadow speeding around the church from the outside until it begins looming on the stained glass windows. David urges the nuns to flee when the shadow breaks in while David, Hook, Neil, and Tink take cover behind the pews. In a flashback on the island of Neverland, Hook and his crew member, Smee, are expeditiously traversing through the jungle. Oh, hey, I think this is our first sighting of Smee this season. 
and he's so good at his job, he gets immediately <laughs> knocked on his ass. Good job, Smee. Way to plant. <laughs> he is no Bob Hoskins. No, 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 he is not. Hook is more driven than ever to find a way back to the Enchanted Forest, since gaining knowledge that the Dark One dagger can be used to kill Rumpelstiltskin. Smee is knocked out by an unknown assailant. As Hook looks around for the attacker, Tinkerbell surprises him at knife point. Seeing as he looks too old to be a lost boy, she demands to know what Hook is doing in the jungle. Hook states that he's simply looking for magic to return to his old world. He slides out of the threatening position to force her back a few steps while guessing, with accuracy, that Tinkerbell is a fairy. In response, she scoffs that he must be a pirate. Hook asks if she will help him. Tinkerbell points the knife at his neck again and instead wonders if he should be worried about his throat getting slit by her. Again, Hook forces her to step back as he sets down his lantern and pushes his face close to hers, nearly closing the gap between them. He questions why she, as a fairy, isn't helping him find his happy ending or something equally as precious. She briefs him on the fact that her wings no longer exist, and as for his, quote, happy ending, he's on his own with that. Was this whole scene supposed to be suggestive? I feel like this was really trying to shove a ship into my face, like the way Bruce Tim tries to cram Batman and Batgirl. Like it's painful for everyone involved. And I say, no, thank you. Good, sir. Good day. Yeah, I mean, that, that was kind of how I felt with the way he really enunciated being like my happy ending. Yeah, like, gross, gross, dude. Gross, dude. I was like, gross, no, dude. buddy. Buddy, that costs extra. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, and by extra, I mean her clear lesbianhood. So I don't think... Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I don't think Tinkerbell's into you, bro. No. Like, not at all. Like, she ain't into you. And Tinkerbell does not like boys. (laughs) Have you seen her type? She wears power suits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I was just like, oh my God, stop. (laughs) Like, stop (laughs) trying to make it happen. You're embarrassing yourself. You're embarrassing (laughs) embarrassing yourself. (laughs) What are you doing? What are you doing? Not very well. (laughs) (laughs) Hook motions to grab something from his pocket, prompting Tinkerbell to pull out another blade. But she lets down her guard once he shows that it is only a rum bottle. He offers it to her, and before Tinkerbell takes a gulp, she asks what is so important to him at home. Hook sadly recalls the Dark One murdering the woman he loved, and Tinkerbell muses that chasing his happy ending might cause him to lose his own life in the process. Hook affirms that he would only risk his life for two things, love and revenge. While his love is already lost, dying while exacting vengeance will be enough satisfaction for him. See, exactly. He realized she was a lesbian, took out a bottle of rum, and then commiserated with her. <laughs> that's that's the appropriate response. Oh, let me tell you about Mila. Yeah. Love me a MILF. He, you a te- milf. he yeah. loves a MILF. <laughs> oh, God. Mila, oh, that's, Laura, that's okay. I'll get to do Emma. it. I think he made a pass at Regina at one point, too. Yeah. Yeah. We flash forward to the present, where Hook volunteers himself to distract the shadow, causing Tinkerbell to remember him only ever taking deadly risks for two things, love or revenge. The pirate cites a third thing, himself. He dodges a hit by the shadow, but is then violently thrown off his feet by another blow injuring him before David can drag him to safety. Neil is not able to use the coconut lantern because the shadow is too high out of reach. David and Neil suggest that Tinkerbell uses her vial of pixie dust. With their encouragement, she steps out into the open and concentrates hard, managing to believe in herself enough to make the dust glow. 
focusing on the wick of the coconut, she lights a flame and uses the dust power to rise into the air so she can suck the shadow into the lantern. She then destroys the creature by throwing the coconut into an open fire. There's a shot while she's flying of Neil and David just watching Tinkerbell with the widest smiles on their faces. They are so proud of her. And it's so cute. I I absolutely saw that. I forgot to make a note of it, but I was like, oh my God, they're so happy for her. It's really sweet. I love that little moment. As everyone congratulates Tank, she confronts Hook, saying she now recognizes that he did not put himself at risk for his own benefit, but for Emma. Mother Superior Shadow is restored to her. And she comes back to life. Boo! God damn it. What? Why? Be dead again. (laughs) (laughs) Shit, they already paid the deposit on the champagne order. No, they're party. Blue congratulates Tinkerbell for her brave actions and apologizes for being too strict. She is impressed by Tink and gives her back her wings and the Black Fairy's wand. David, Hook, and Neil rush back to the pawn shop to give Mr. Gold the wand and tell everyone about Mother Superior's return. Before Mr. Gold begins the switch, he reveals the one item he was able to pilfer from Greg and Tamara, the wrist cuff, which prevented magic. (laughs) It'd be funny if the cuff plays Thomas Dolby, she blinded me with science. (laughs) Like, oh no, tis the one thing that blocks magic. Science. 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 Mr. Gold clasps the bracelet on Pan's body to prevent him from using his magic once their bodies are switched. Sweet Henry apologizes to his family for trying to be a hero by giving Pan his heart. But charming Grandpa Himba refutes this, stating Pan is the one who needs to be sorry. Tall good Henry lays back on the cot as Mr. Gold uses the Black Fairy's wand to enact the spell. Once the wand is used to transfer Henry and Pan's spirits back to their rightful bodies, everyone rushes out to look for Henry. Belle and Neil notice Mr. Gold is staying behind and wait for him to join but he says he has unfinished family business with his dear old dad. Bell continues on, though Neil stays behind a beat longer to look silently as his father stares down at the unconscious body of Pan. I like that through this whole scene, Bell is hanging on Neil like, I'm not like other moms. I'm a cool mom. So <laughs> Rumble has told me absolutely nothing about you at all. Um, what kind of cookies do you want me to bake for you? What's your favorite color? When's your basketball game? I will never miss a game. <laughs> she <laughs> She's definitely miss- giving new stepmom energy through this oh, yeah. whole scene. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. She's like, I'm going to be the coolest like stepmom ever because like we're basically the same age. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm sure he's just like, yay. Yay, this is not <laughs> awkward at all. It's uh, like um, Bill and Ted. It is like yeah, Bill and Ted. Hi, Missy. Missy. Sorry, Hi, Missy. Missy. I mean, mom. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. And then I love how Missy is like such a mom. Like, she's not flirty with them at all. She's like, Ted, be home. Or Ted, don't forget <laughs> out to bring out the guy. Yes, Missy. Bill, be, you know, yes, Missy. I mean, mom. <laughs> so, yeah, that is 100% their dynamic <laughs> and then and then you have ted whispering in bill's ear do you remember when we we were freshmen and she was a senior and we asked her out to prom <laughs> shut up dad <laughs> wow i can't believe missy dumped your dad and that's dating my dad now shut up shut ted, up, ted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good so good in a flashback to storybrooke while the dark curse is still in effect in october of 2011 Ten-year-old Henry is sitting at a table on the school grounds while looking at a homework assignment he did not complete. The homework assignment 
is the family tree. Henry tucks the paper away in a folder and pushes it under his open lunchbox. His teacher, Mary Margaret, notices Henry and comes over to ask if there is a problem since he didn't turn in his homework again. Henry remains silent at her question, so she sits down to console him by saying things will change if he believes in it since life is unpredictable. He closes his lunchbox and wonders if her life is unpredictable, considering that everything in town, in his eyes, seems to be the same except himself. He is unhappy that his birth mother didn't love him, and neither does Regina, though she pretends to. Even more so, Henry feels like he doesn't belong in Storybrooke. Mary Margaret believes Henry does belong here, and that he is loved. He has no visible reaction to her words, so she quickly gets an idea. Mary Margaret explains that while cleaning her bedroom as she does every weekend, good for you, Mary Margaret. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely, she was like, like I do every week. I was like, what the fuck does it every week? I My mean, God, I guess woman. she has nothing else to do. I think, I think it's honestly, it's supposed to be a line to indicate that, right, they're like on a Westworld kind of track, like where they do the same thing, you know, like there is no change, you know. But well, she but, just literally has nothing else going on. So it's like, well, I guess I'll just clean my closet again because what the fuck else do I have to do? Yeah, right. She discovered a mysterious book appear in her closet, which she doesn't remember being there, but it appeared almost like magic. She pulls out a book entitled Once Upon a Time and sets it in front of him. Henry says it's not possible for a book to just appear out of nowhere. Mary Margaret agrees, but it happened anyway. As he opens the book to a random page of a young boy and an older man with a cricket stuck to a clock, Mary Margaret goes on to say the book is here despite the strange circumstances of whether she was given the book a long time ago or if it arrived from someplace. She says she feels the book contains hope. Henry states that they simply look like fairy tales. To this, Mary Margaret explains fairy tales are a reminder that their lives will get better if they just hold on to hope. And though his happy ending is not what he might expect, this is what will make it special. He asks to borrow the book, though she gifts it to him. Henry brightens up with a smile at her response, to which she says that even believing in the possibility of a happy ending is a powerful thing. Snow White is too good for this goddamn place. <laughs> this whole scene is so good. It's it's one of my favorites in this episode, and I just overall really like this episode, so that's saying something, mm -hmm. but it's really lovely. As she leaves, Henry turns to another page of a princess and her prince. Henry calls Mary Margaret suddenly, and upon looking up, he sees his teacher for a brief moment as the same princess in the book. A second later, the vision disappears and Mary Margaret looks like her normal self. In awe, Henry thanks her for giving him the book. Another flip of a page and Henry sees the princess cradling an infant child. Strangely, he recognizes the child's name on the blanket as Emma. How Henry managed to draw the connection from Mary Margaret to Snow based off these illustrations, though, is honestly beyond me. <laughs> Because everyone has a pudding face. <laughs> yeah. Mm, pudding. I mean, pudding. That, the art in this is so bad. But I loved him looking up and seeing Snow White for a brief moment so much. It's, I feel like it's so well done. And just him first reading the name Emma and everything was just, it was sweet. And this quiet kind of magical and reminded me of how much I loved moments like this in season one. Another thing where I'm just like, this episode has such finale vibes. Like there's so many like little satisfying emotional moments and callbacks. 
I thought that was a very sweet thing that they did, like with him seeing her as Snow White. And so we understand a little bit better how Henry made that connection between, you know, the stories and then where we see Henry in pilot, you know, of just like a convert. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I do think that that scene was very good. I just... Oh, no, no, no. Those illustrations are gone. He looks down at the book. They're garbage illustrations. He looks down at the book. And it's basically just a beige circle with an emoji in the middle of it for a face. (laughs) And he's just like, same person. And I'm like, baby, how do we get here? (laughs) That's why they had to show her in her costume, because he would have never put two and two together. (laughs) How how could he? Pudding face. Yeah, that's what it was about. It was like magic in his soul. Saw through the truth in that moment. Saw through the pudding. Saw through the pudding. The pudding, the pudding of the moment. <laughs> <laughs> this magic pudding. I want pudding now. I know, me too. When your spoon is next to mine. Okay, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> I, I know that whole song, so I can absolutely make a song about pudding. <sighs> On the high street in Storybrook, Granny uses her wolfish tracking skills to find Henry, who is at the clock tower. After reuniting with his mother's, he hands the scroll to Regina, who passes out as soon as she touches it. Chell showed us a deleted scene for this episode that we assume would have gone here. And it, it was a flashback for Regina, with Regina talking with her father, probably like the night before her wedding to King Leopold. And she's talking about how, you know, she doesn't want this. She doesn't want this life. All she really wanted was to love and be loved. And I think that little flashback is the nice parallel to the scenes that we will see follow with Regina. So I think the episode doesn't need it, but I think it also would have been nice if it had been included. Yeah, I, th- I think this um, episode was so packed, something had to go. Yeah. Back at the pawn shop, Pan awakens in his own body. Mr. Gold looks coldly down at his father and gives him a chance to express remorse for his actions. Also refers to Pan as Papa, and it makes me deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> I never need to hear a grown man say Papa, ever. In countries, Papa and Daddy are still said with abundance and... Not here! (laughs) I guess so. And if it is, it's with a much different implication. Oh no. Oh my. Oh my. I'm not wrong and that's why it's making me uncomfortable. (laughs) Okay, how you doing, Papa? Is that a thing? You know, you, say know, that? you know that's not the one I, I meant. I know it's you Daddy. You know that's not the one I, I meant, know. and you know it. I know. I don't know. I think like old Southern men say Daddy. Oh, my Daddy. Blah. The South plays by its own set of rules. This is true. All right. Wasn't as bad as when August said it. No. No. God. Because that, I just was like, that well, was, yeah. time to take a bath and bleach because I'll <laughs> never be clean again. Yeah. I feel like Robert Carlyle sells it, though. He sells it. It's still uncomfortable. It's yeah, just not as weird. uncomfortable as when August did it. <laughs> I think August doesn't. That's a child that he's saying it to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, that's also a little weird because it's like, hello, hello, my fourteen-year-old father. I don't know. I just feel like Europeans get a pass, you know. But should they? On certain things, no. On on this, yes. Yeah, this is harmless. It's fine. Mm. <laughs> it's okay. You can remain sus. We will not judge you for it. Thank you. Pan talks about Mr. Gold as a baby and describes him with seeming affection. Then he elaborates on how little his son's big eyes filled with tears pulled at him. Not only did he pull away his money, but also his time and hopes of ever having a better life. 
I know we've talked about how good Robbie K is before, but I have to see it again, just how good he is. No matter how you feel about the Malcolm Pan twist, Robbie K's performance, especially in the scene, is legit convincing as a resentful father. Like, he sells it. It shouldn't be possible to sell it, but he does. Uh, It reminds me a little bit of how well Aiden Gallagher sells being a jaded older gentleman in the Umbrella Academy because he just blows my mind too. Oh, number five, my sweet child, who is also somehow a 65-year-old man. And you fucking believe it. Watch Umbrella Academy, guys. It's super good. I will. I will try. I want to watch it. Do it. Don't let your dreams be dreams. (laughs) (laughs) Also, agreed. Like... It was like so sweet and I forgot how that speech got really twisted and and just really just painful. And you're just like, oh my God, like what is fucking wrong with you? <laughs> so, but like Robbie K is so fucking good. Like not every actor could, doesn't matter their age, could pull off transitioning from seemingly very affectionate and nostalgic and stuff to just malicious and bitter and regretful. You know, you're just like, my God, you are so good. He's so good. So good. Frustrated, Pan says to his son, why can't I be free of you? In response, Mr. Gold holds a sword to Pan's chest. Pan decides to teach his son one last lesson and tears the cuff from his arm. Mr. Gold is stunned as Pan tells him the bracelet was his own creation and therefore cannot be used against him. Using magic to cuff his son, Pan flings him into the wall and kicks him back before leaving the shop, saying that he will not only take the memories of Mr. Gold's family, but also their lives. He taunts Rumpel, saying there is nothing he can do to stop Pan, as without magic, he is right back to where he started, as the village coward. While I had actually forgotten about the cuff plot in this episode, as soon as Rumpelstiltskin brought it out earlier, I was like, oh, bud. That's a magic device from Pan, Mr. Home Office himself. That's not going to work. And then it didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he knew that Pan made it. He just knew that Greg and Tamara had it. In a flashback to the Enchanted Forest, Rumpelstiltskin lights a candle for his son Balefire's birthday. When Belle walks in bearing flowers, Rumpel orders her away. She stays anyway, realizing he is holding a vigil in a remembrance for his son. She asks how old Bellfire would be, to which Rumpelstiltskin defensively states that he isn't dead, just lost. The Dark One quietly states out loud his own wish to be with his son in celebration of the birthday. Rumpelstiltskin tells her that they once had a chance to be happy together, but he was too afraid. She tries to console him, saying it's not too late. Though Rumpelstiltskin hopes she is right, he recognizes his ending shall not be a happy one. That's why you don't yeet your son down a hole, doofus. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Onesers. Narrator Chell here for some shameless self-promotion. I'm a guest on an upcoming episode of one of my favorite podcasts, Fuckboys of Literature, where I have the absolute pleasure of discussing one of my favorite characters of all time, Captain James Hook. Host Emily Edwards and I discuss the specific portrayals from Dustin Hoffman from the 1991 film Hook and Jason Isaacs from the 2003 film adaptation of Peter Pan. 
what is fuckboys of literature the podcast you ask the characters of literature other readers exalt but you hope to never meet fbol is the comedy podcast about toxic characters writers and tropes of literature and legend Join host Emily Edwards to discuss feminist literature, toxic masculinity, gender roles, and intersectional representation in books. These are the fuckboys of literature. New episodes are available exclusively to Patreon subscribers. For just $1 per month, you can access all of the brand new episodes. Any money made on Patreon for the remainder of August will be donated to abortion access networks across the country. Not convinced? Listen to a large backlog of episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or fuckboysofliterature.com before making that pledge. Just don't wait too long. We want to be able to raise as much money as we can so folks all over the country can have access to safe abortions. In the present, Mr. Gold vainly struggles with the cuff. Becoming desperate, he picks up the sword and toys with the idea of cutting his hand off to be rid of the bracelet. But it's like, bro, how about the cell phone in your pocket? Mm, More magical than the sword. For real, you jumped to chop off my own hand before ask someone to take the damn cuff off. (laughs) He didn't want to owe Regina any favors. Better to just lose the hand. Fair play. He could have called Belle. Could have called literally anyone. <laughs> well, they needed magic to take it off Regina during the season two finale, didn't they? Didn't it was Rumpelstiltskin that took it off? Was it? It was either Rumpelstiltskin or the Blue Fairy that took it off. Well, she's alive now, so they could have gotten her. Yeah, true. I think yeah, I think it might have actually been Blue. Well, at this know. point, with I literally thought they them just took favor. it off. So, like, the least she could do is come and take off some jewelry. True. Yeah. In front of the clock tower, Regina awakens and tells everyone that she just saw how to stop the curse. Okay. But the way Regina says, Emma, when she wakes up, like, Swan Queen fans, how y'all doing after that? You're thriving? You're flourishing? That was so soft and so loaded with meaning. I'm sure they were all like, that's hot. And it's just the start of it. It's just the start of it. Mm -hmm. Before Regina can do anything... Pan magics the curse into his hand and magically freezes everyone present. He wonders if he should kill Belle or Neil first, before deciding on murdering his grandson. Poopaw, no! (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that was great. Thank you, I try very hard. (laughs) Luckily, Mr. Gold arrives in the nick of time, both hands still attached. (laughs) Magic. To an immobilized Neil, Rumpelstiltskin acknowledges making the curse in order to find him. Alas, Mr. Gold now realizes it's all a mistake because his son's happiness is not with him. He expresses love for Neil and then Belle, who made him stronger. With these farewells, he summons his detached shadow in order to receive the dagger that bears his name. Mr. Gold explains to Pan that the only way he can die is if they both die. On that note, he plunges the blade through his father's back. Belle and Neil look on in horror as Pan's youth is taken from him in the form of a darkened smoke and Malcolm reappears in his place. Robert Carlyle is so good. This whole cast is so good. This was like Robert Carlyle's like moment to shine and shine yeah. and shine he did because it was amazing. This was like this whole season has been culminating for him, his arc. 
has led to this moment of like growth and change. And we're just going to ignore the fact that like literally two minutes ago, he was just like flailing on the ground, forgetting he owns a cell phone. But yeah. um, <laughs> that's, that's not Robert Carlyle. That is the writers. <laughs> Call for help. Call for Chop help. off hand. Chop off hand. Mm. Oh, man. But yeah, like, you know, he realizes that the happy ending that Neil is going to have to just not be with him, but that he is alive. He's well, he's thriving. And that's good enough for him. You know, he doesn't have yeah. to have everything and, you know, acknowledges Belle's love and, you know, everything she did for him and then takes out Pan. Yeah. I thought it was really good. I thought it was a good character arc. Such a shame. Shame. Okay. No, I'm not even going to talk about it. It's just a good character arc. Right it's a good here. character arc. And, and like, if this and was the end of Rumpelstiltskin's story. He would have gone out like a fucking champ. Amazing. Like, I Amazing. feel like this would have been. I- I'm going to talk about it like yeah. after. I- I'll, yeah. t- I'll talk about it. Yeah. Put a pin in that. We'll talk about that later. Malcolm attempts to plead with his son, stating that they can start over and have a happy ending. Mr. Gould attests that he himself is a villain and as such can't have a happy ending. Then he twists the dagger deep into both their wounds as a golden light pours out from the blade. The light engulfs them as Mr. Gould places one last kiss on his father's cheek and they vanish. With Pan's death, the others are freed from their immobility. Belle immediately crumples onto the ground in a heartbroken despair over Mr. Gold's death. David and Mary Margaret are too horrified for words at what they witnessed while the others are also speechless. Regina dazedly picks up the scroll and stares into space, causing Neil to ask her to not let his father's death be in vain. I guess the stakes are high right now, but before it's even revealed what the price is, it's clear Regina is grappling with what the cost of ending the curse is going to be and that it's obviously not a great one so like everyone just stand there yelling come on regina do the thing at her seems really insensitive to me in this scene <laughs> lana's silent performance here is so good and, and so is michael's performance here like it's everyone everyone is so good this episode is really good i was just so emotionally invested the whole time with this one the curse's fog is still closing in and there is no time to waste regina anxiously describes the curse's price She has to say goodbye to the thing she loves most, Henry. She can't ever see him again because destroying the scroll will undo both curses, meaning that Storybrooke will be undone as well. Everyone except Henry will be transported back to the Enchanted Forest, prevented from ever returning. Since he was born in the land without magic, Henry cannot be brought into the forest. Only Emma will be able to stay with him because she is the savior and thus able to escape the curse once again. This whole moment, Regina's character growth in this episode, it feels so deserved this time around. Seeing how far she's come from like where she was, you're actually proud of her. Or I was at least. I'm proud of no man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm proud of her. I mean, don't get me wrong. She put them all there in the first fucking place. Oh, yeah, no. (laughs) No, 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 but no. Right. No. I, I am, I am. Like, you yeah. Know. Yeah. It's still, like, it, it is a rare moment of genuine character growth on Regina's. Yeah. As, yes. as opposed to like the millions of times over the course of the series thus far where she's just been like, what? Why do they all still hate me? I've come so far. And it's like, no, you <laughs> no, really you haven't. haven't. No. But this time, this time. This I've only murdered one here. man this week. Come she on. Has, she has come far. No, she has. Um, Absolutely. I feel like we talked about this in the very beginning when we started the podcast. Like, I'm not a Regina apologist. I really like the character. I enjoy the character. But she's done 
terrible things that there's there's no way to repent from. That's just that that's there and that that's never going to change. But I love watching her grow all the same. Ditto. Emma refuses, wanting to go to the Enchanted Forest with Henry, but Regina says that is not an option. She needs to pay the price, otherwise she can't stop the curse. David and Mary Margaret tell Emma that she needs to take Henry away for both of their best chances. They will always be a family, but they want Emma and Henry to have a happy ending. I was emotionally compromised. My heart hurts. I have feelings. I have many feelings. I know, honey. I have feelings. This was very charged and I was here for it. Regina tells her that all she wanted was for Emma to get the hell out of her town so she can keep her son. But now all she wants is for Henry to be happy. Finally, Emma agrees to leave Storybrooke with Henry, their son. Gosh, Swan Queen fans, are you okay? Because damn, it's not even my ship and I believe in them and I'm very sad. Mm -hmm. I know. Henry has two moms. They love him very much, but I'm also pretty sure they might love each other very, very much as well. I mean... That's kind of what I got from this whole scene. Yeah. Like, like this is the goodbye of two people who are deeply in love with each other. Yeah. yeah. In a brief flashback to Henry's birth, Emma recalls declaring she cannot be a mother. Flash forward to the present, at the town border, Emma and Henry say their goodbyes to their friends and family, including Dr. Hopper, Mother Superior, and the Seven Dwarves. Henry sadly tells Regina that it's all his fault, that if he had never looked for Emma and just lived with Regina under the curse, none of this would have happened. He confesses that he felt alone and thought Regina didn't really love him. He was wrong. Regina consoles him, reassuring him that none of this is his fault but hers, for casting the curse in vengeance. She recalls Mr. Gold's words and agrees that a villain like her can't have a happy ending. Henry disagrees and tells her that she is not a villain, but his mom. Which is very sweet. But Henry, my sweet little lamb, <laughs> she did murder like a whole goddamn village. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the same the scene and, was so and remember, sweet, but she she has no regrets about it as a few episodes reminded exactly. us. She's like, yeah, I got no fucking regrets. <laughs> yeah, she or like, regrets. She, she admits <laughs> she admits that she shouldn't have done it, but she doesn't regret it. Yeah. Yeah. No, she was like, it was probably it was probably a bad. I probably did a bad. I don't care that I did a bad, but that was probably a bad on my part. But look at Henry. He's so cute. Yeah. No, Henry is perfect and a perfect angel in this scene. But I definitely have like a, oh, oh, my sweet summer child. Oh, I mean, she murdered that village. She murdered it real good. Yeah. There's children in there. that pile. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Isle of bodies in the old yep. woods. <laughs> Why would Snow White do this? <laughs> Emma embraces Neil, who promises that he will see her and their son again. Hook says goodbye to Emma, promising that there won't be a day that goes by without him thinking of her. Good, she quietly replies. Before Emma can get into her car, Regina has one final thing to say to them. When the curse removes Storybrooke from existence, there will be no trace of it left, not even in their memories. Though Regina can't preserve either Emma nor their son's memories, she can create false ones. Though it pains her emotionally, Regina can create a past in which Emma never gave Henry up for adoption, so they'll always have been together. Regina building into the curse that Emma can leave with Henry and building her these happy memories of her raising Henry, and it's just, 
It's moments like this that make me truly understand the Swan Queen fandom that had felt queer baited by the show. Because this scene feels like Regina is completely in love with Emma. Like over the seasons, it went from hate to respect to this loose truce and almost friendship. And like, it really feels like by this point, she has fallen in love. I, I do see that. I see that in this episode. And while I've, you know, I've always been cool with the canon Emma ships, and I still absolutely am cool with canon Emma ships. Like, I enjoy them. I enjoy the moments to come. I've enjoyed the moments we've had. But this rewatch has really led me to, to, to love Swan Queen as well. Like I am, I find myself very invested in their dynamic and how far they have come and see the evidence for it along the way. So congrats, Swan Queen fan. I guess I join your ranks. I mean, I'm still a multi-shipper, but I, know. I, I admit it. It's a good, it's a good ship. <laughs> I don't no, no, it is. And it's, it's kind of a ship that sails itself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you don't got to look hard or far. Uh-uh. No. It's low-hanging fruit, man. It's low it, is hanging there, fruit. it is there for the picking. It if, is. If Regina was a male character, or if Emma was mm. a male character, if the two parents, the birth birth parent and the adopted parent that were opposing sides in this mm-hmm. grand story, if it had been a man and a woman. If it had been Neil, Neil's story, rather than Emma's. They absolutely, they would have ended up together. I have no question that this would have been the endgame couple. Mm-hmm. It would. But it's you, a queer ship and they're cowards. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But like, if this had been a male and a female, they would have ended up together. I, I do believe that. Emma protests because the memories won't be real. And Regina agrees. However, their future will be real. With that, Henry and Emma receive final kisses from their mothers and clamor into the car. Man, I lost it when Snow kissed Emma on the forehead and just said goodbye that way silently, like unable to actually say anything. It was so beautiful. I completely lost it. I was a snotty little mess. It really got to me. Mm. I had feelings. I was like, oh, definitely got me in the feels. They watch Regina use her power to turn the green mist purple. Then they drive across the town border just as the fog closes in on their family. Storybrooke vanishes from the world until even the spray-painted borderline is gone. The town and then Henry's room and the storybook itself being washed Mm -hmm. over by the curse was this lovely silent visual with just the score and the town being overrun with the curse now now turned Regina's signature purple. I I just think this episode was so well done. It was great. I do too. In a flashback, Emma gives birth to Henry. However, the memory of when she refused to look at him or hold him changes. Instead of giving up her child, she asks to hold her baby. Emma smiles in wonder as she gazes at her newborn son. A year after the erasure of Storybrooke, Henry and Emma are happily living in an apartment in New York City. I'm so surprised it's New York and not Boston. Uh, Same. Growth. Growth. Regina grew. The show grew. I'm surprised it wasn't in Tallahassee, but meh, it's okay. Emma makes a tasty breakfast of pancakes and eggs for herself and Henry, paired with hot chocolate topped off with cinnamon, and Henry waters their plants. I love the detail of Emma listening to Charlie's Girl by Lou Reed, which is the same song Neil is listening to in his own headphones. 
in season two, episode one, Broken. Mm -hmm. It's so, so, so good that they did that. And it gives me many, many, many feelings. And there's there's so many small details in this episode that are so well done. You can tell so much care went into this episode. Before they can dig into their breakfast, there is a knock at the door. Neither are expecting company, so they both ignore it until the knocking becomes pounding. You're interrupting pancake time! They look really good, too. Yeah. They did that breakfast looked really good, and I wish I was eating it. <laughs> Emma goes to open the door, revealing none other than Captain Hook. He is overjoyed to see Emma, even if she doesn't recognize him at all. That doesn't stop the overeager captain from kissing her, though. Not cool, bro. Buddy, consent. We, we already learned this. True love's kiss, number one, doesn't work if it's not true love yet. And number two, if they don't remember you. Yeah. Rumple tried that already. I mean, didn't I go well for him either. Didn't go for him. Yeah, it didn't. Mm-hmm. Emma gives Hook a knee in the groin while Hook mumbles that at least he had to try, which he didn't. No. Emma ignores his pleas for help about something terrible that has happened and her family is in trouble. Blah, blah, blah. She responds that her family is right here and slams the door in his face. Henry curiously asks who that was. Emma theorizes that someone probably left the downstairs door open. He's just a New York crazy. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. like a pirate. End credits. Oh man, what a great ending to this episode. And what a great ending to the Neverland arc. I went into this episode remembering that I did really love this episode. And after rewatching it, I can confirm that, yes, it is still one of my favorites. It's so strong. The writing, the performances, the way it's a beautiful close to both the Neverland arc and to the two seasons before it. I I said it earlier, but it feels like a finale. Mm -hmm. And while it's, you know, it's the finale of the Neverland arc, so the the mid-season finale, it's strong enough that I think it's surprising they didn't save the story until wrapping up the whole season. Like, to me, this episode feels like they were at risk of potentially not being renewed and wanted to give us a finale just in case they weren't. I looked it up and this isn't actually the case, but I'm surprised it isn't because this episode, while would have been bittersweet, could have actually been a decently satisfying series finale. It left hope for an eventual continuation, but it was a nice little wrap-up. Everyone just exceeded my expectations for this episode. The cast, the writers, the director, I, I think it was well done overall. It just it just felt like a lot of care went into this episode, and it showed. I feel like I actually had very little to say about this episode since... <laughs> it's okay, I just like, hello? Apparently you have something to say about this episode, though. Yeah, that, that was Otis. Otis has <laughs> a lot to say. But... Honestly, it's pretty good and really should have been the season finale. I also feel like this episode just like has to be a touchstone for Swan Queen fans because my God was their chemistry off the charts this episode. I think my only real gripe I have is the same one I've had since the big reveal of this arc, which is just that Pan was such a good villain and he deserved an ending that wasn't so weak and lazy, but... Other than that, it was a very good, very emotionally charged episode. This was an incredibly satisfactory conclusion to the Neverland arc. And I really wish this is just where season three ended, to be honest. This is literally the last time I'm going to feel joy for a long, long time. (laughs) And I am going to sit in this like a warm bubble bath and just like bask in it. it. The kind of ending it had 
to echo what Elisa said, is as if they did not know if they were going to be renewed or if like people's contracts were up or something. It had that kind of feel, right? Definitely like, felt penultimate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they were necessarily even renewed past season three. I don't think so, but I could be wrong. No spoilers, but season 3B is not written like this is the end. No. It's written like they think they have a long ways to go. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. With Rumble dying, they kind of set it up for him to either stay dead or he can come back, you know, and the whole like, you know, villains don't have happy endings kind of thing is a theme. So obviously like they're going to circle back to that eventually. But it's like, I don't know, just the way they did it with such finality mm-hmm. uh, was still very satisfactory. You know, like, I, as you said, like, if they had gotten canceled, like, right here, I would have been like, oh, man, what could have been? Like, they would have left on a high, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I feel, in my, in my opinion, I know we'll really get into it at the end of season three with our, our end of season three wrap up, right? I, I feel, I mean, Rumpelstiltskin's my favorite character, but... I feel like he could have stayed dead here and I would have been okay with that. And then obviously like this, the show is about a happy ending and, and even the heroes technically aren't getting a happy ending. Like that's kind of more of a bleaker ending we would see like in a not Disney setting. Like I feel like that's more of a Fox, HBO, Hulu. You know what I'm saying? On another network, it could have ended like how it ended here. But because it's Disney, of course, they're just going to keep it going until everybody, Snow White, Charming, blah, 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 you know, they're all reunited, which is fine. Totally fine. That's what I signed up for. Neverland Arc, thank you for being you. While you're not perfect, you are a fun, satisfying piece of television, and I wholly enjoyed watching you. Yeah. And thank you, Robbie Kay. Good Lord. Yeah. Thank you, Robbie Kay. He killed it. Especially Robbie Kay. Especially Robbie Kay. So costumes. I don't have much to say about costumes in this episode. My only thing of note is I loved them breaking out Snow's wedding dress again for that brief vision of Henry's in the flashback of him getting the book. I think it was the perfect one to bring out for that moment. I mean, she was in it this episode more than just that scene. Well, she was Mm. in the maternity, which is basically like her wedding dress, but different. Oh, is it different? Yeah, it's a little different. It's a little different. Oh, my God, I thought this whole time that she's just been like sitting around in her fucking no, 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 no. Oh she has God. she has a white maternity dress that's a very similar styling but less structured. Yeah. Oh, and uh, uh, I actually uh, learned recently from Eduardo's Instagram. It's a top and a skirt. The top was a purchased piece, and the skirt was made by them to match it for the maternity or for the for maternity. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And. I would have to actually look at like the birth date of Josh Dallas and Jennifer Goodwin's child, but I'm fairly certain. She's pregnant this time. Yes. Oh yeah, no, this she is, is this, this is about the part where Jennifer Goodwin was pregnant because that's why they wrote in the whole I want to have another baby plot line. Right. Oh no, I know that. But like I'm saying like but, I think she pregnant, pregnant. Because oh, she I, is. That's why they have all the like high-waisted peacoats that she's yes, missing. Yes, the high-waisted because peacoats. They're all to hide, hide little little bump had the bump and it's funny because like there are certain angles that like i guess they just can't avoid you know Mm -hmm. for certain Mm -hmm. shots and i'm like oh girl you knocked up (laughs) at least they tried it's not like um, they tried 
it's not like True Blood where they were where the season where Anna Paquin was pregnant. They just like literally anytime you saw her, like they cut most of her scenes. But anytime you saw her, they only had her in pajamas. Yeah. Because they were like, we don't know how to make Suki Stackhouse not look pregnant. So we're going to cut 90% of her scenes. And when you do see her, she's just going to be in PJs all the time. Yeah, I don't know if I got to that point. Constant tables with like boxes of cereal and stuff in front of her. Yeah, like really awkwardly placed objects on tables in front of her to hide Tum Tum. I remember they did that with, um, uh, I can't think of the actress's name, but Daphne in Frasier. But like they just leaned hard into it. They like were like, oh, she got big because of um, the stress from, you know, leaving Donnie and, and then becoming Niles' girlfriend. On New Girl, they had Jess get jury duty. Yeah. And then that's it was like they... a huge case. So she had to be like. So she was gone forever. <laughs> and that's <laughs> how they covered up Zoe Deschanel being pregnant. They were yeah, like, Jess, nice. Jess has jury duty. So she can't be here. She has to be sequestered because it's a really important case. <laughs> With John Cho. With John Cho. With John Cho. All right. Time to play Who's That Guest Star? In season three, episode 11, we have Rose McIver as Tinkerbell. So New Zealand actress Rose McIver has been acting since she was two years old, starting with commercials before branching out into film and television. She's had roles and guest appearances in titles such as Xena, Warrior Princess, Madigan's Quest, The Lovely Bones, Power Rangers RPM, Masters of Sex, iZombie, and the American Adaption of Ghosts. And I have to say, first of all, I have two observations. One, how dare she not be on The Tribe? She is literally the only actress in her age group that has like was not on The Tribe. <laughs> Which you really I'm, have a thing about The Tribe. Oh, she does. Don't. don't she does. Say the, the, <laughs> tribe, <laughs> the Tribe is cut. Like, if I did a shot every time The Tribe came up, I'd be in the hospital. I mean, <laughs> Chell is the only other person I've ever met here in, in sunny California that not only knew The Tribe, but like loved The Tribe way more than I, I ever did. I felt like I was kind of a casual watcher, but I, I definitely enjoyed it. Oh, but no. I am... I'm definitely like frothy fam girl about it. Like I'm not engaged in any of the fandom, but like I, I am very passionate about it to say the least. And then my second observation is that I don't think there's any other country other than Japan, maybe, where Power Rangers <laughs> is, is a gigantic fucking franchise. I, I don't even know how many iterations of Power Rangers there are. But so, I can many. T- so, so many. So many. So many. And I feel like New Zealand adapts all of them. Because yet again, I'm going to bring back the tribe. Sorry about it, Lynn. A lot of the tribe actors went on to then do Power Rangers. So she at least had hit at least like one New Zealand standard. All right. It's time for Once Upon a Timeline, which is a lot more intricate this time than it usually is. I'm looking at how long this one is (laughs) and I'm just like, oh no. All right. So this is a very unique one because the flashbacks jump around in the timeline and in the central character featured in that flashback. So with that said, let's do a speed run placing each of them within our timeline we've seen so far. Speed run. Flashback one shows a pregnant snow talking to the blue fairy about the enchanted wardrobe, placing it within the flashback scene in both season one, episode one pilot and season one, episode 12, The Stranger. As well as a few others, this time period is often (laughs) revisited in flashbacks. Flashback two shows 
Hook and Smee exploring Neverland after learning about the Dark One's dagger, which places this flashback shortly after those in Season 2, Episode 22, and straight on till morning, since that's the episode where Hook learns about the dagger from Bay. Flashback 3 shows Henry in a cursed storybook receiving the storybook from Mary Margaret. Placing the scene sometime before, maybe maybe weeks, maybe maybe a month, maybe even just days, before he steals Mary Margaret's credit card and arrives at Emma's doorstep in Boston in Season 1, Episode 1, Pilot. Now, flashback number four takes place in Season 1, Episode 12, Skin Deep, sometime after Rumpelstiltskin has told Belle about Bay, but before... He kicks Belle out of the dark castle because they seem to be doing pretty all right in this flashback. Flashback number five takes place during the single flashback we had seen in season three, episode one, The Heart of the Truest Believer, where we see Emma give birth to Henry in prison. And the final flashback in the episode is the very first false memory Regina has gifted to Emma showing her deciding to hold and ultimately keep the newborn Henry. Mic drop. (laughs) That was very good. You did very good, honey. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Time for our rants and raves. I feel like a broken record since I talked about it last week, too, and I feel like multiple other times. But after literally years, since I don't have a ton of podcast time, I finally finished the Magnus Archives, and it was very good, and I don't want to spoil it for people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm it's me I'm people she's people <laughs> the only other thing I think that's really happened to me since the last time we recorded is that me and Elisa went and saw the stage version of Moulin Rouge which I have complicated feelings on like the the staging and the costuming were absolutely amazing and it's a good spectacle to watch but I didn't really like some of the changes both thematically and musically that were made for the stage version like If it wasn't one of my favorite movies, or if I hadn't seen the movie at all, I'd probably have been a lot more, hey man, whatever about the whole thing, but it is, and I have, so that's what I got. Yeah, it was a visual spectacle. It was beautiful to look at, but there were several parts where I was like, Christian would never. He would never. He would never. Is that Ewan McGregor? That's Ewan McGregor. Okay. I've seen the movie once. I'm I'm sorry, Lynn, I... It is not to my taste. That's fine. Both me and Elisa love it. I love it so much. No, it's all good. That movie was my fucking personality when it came out in theaters. Aw. (laughs) I was so obsessed with it. Me too. I had a poster on my door in my bedroom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cole Kidman was definitely another queer awakening lady for me, specifically in Moulin Rouge. Oh yeah, Moulin Rouge was just like bisexual panic for me. In love with Ewan, in love with Because I was like, everyone in this movie is so attractive. (laughs) In love with John Leguizamos. Yes. I I did love John Leguizamos in this, yes. In love with the narcoleptic Argentinian. I know, I'm like, I don't know the actor's name, but the narcoleptic Argentinian's gorgeous. (laughs) So good. I love that movie. Kylie McNogue was like my favorite part of it. And that was it. Kylie (laughs) McNogue was in it for two seconds. Yeah. 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 In a hallucination. Yeah. The best part. (laughs) So despite Lynn warning us against the Magnus archives, I decided, fuck it. (laughs) And give it a go. (laughs) Listen, listen. 
Every time I bring up horror, you both unanimously go, I don't like horror. That doesn't sound like it's for me. So no. it, seemed, it seemed valid for me to be no, like, I'm not you guys arguing against you. Don't, you guys, don't touch it. No, <laughs> don't no, touch no, it. No. It's hot. No, 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 no. You are, you are the probably the most responsible friend I have when it comes to ensuring that I am not inadvertently exposed to horror, especially after Ariana had me watch Midsummer and then promptly forgot like some of the gorier scenes. And I know you're listening to this, Ariana, but it was oh. still, it was still a very good movie, but oh, I, bud, ask I, me I, next time. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I'm going to Lynn first. Yeah. Lynn, Lynn will steer you straight. <laughs> so anyway, I started anyway, to get the Magnus archives. Magnus archives, even though yeah. I told you not to go on. <laughs> she told me not to, but nobody's allowed to blame Lynn because she told me not to. She, because I did a disclaimer. So yes. So, um, did my duty, but you know what? I decided I, I ended up really liking it. Like at first, like I was like, I don't know about this better give it another, <laughs> like literally like listen to like the first four episodes going, I'm not sure I have questions. What the fuck? And I just kept going. I'm like, I, I kept saying like, I'm too stupid to be scared. <laughs> so, like, I just end up with more questions than I do like being fearful. It's made my dreams a little more vivid if I stay up too late listening to them, but nothing which sent me like spiraling into madness, you know, yet. So I've really been enjoying that. I've just started season three. So it's really, really taking off. I also, I, you know what? I, I listened to the Q&As too. And I really, really appreciate that Jonathan Sims, the, the writer and the, the voice of the archivist, like they were asked, like, what do you feel like? What's a trope or something that you hate in horror that you feel is like lazy or something, you know, or just like it just really gets under your skin. And he said using sexual assault as mm-hmm. as like anything other than processing trauma. If you're using it, you're you're just gross and lazy. Oh no, yeah. they're they're great. And as someone who has gone through with the entire of the Magnus archives, as much as they like are we're gonna touch on everything you're afraid of, it they don't with that. Right. Oh, I figured they would. And so. like, he's also like later on in the series, given disclaimers, like, cause there's a couple episodes that touch on different type of trauma mm-hmm. and he has straight up been like, we, we don't believe in exploiting trauma for the sake of trauma. And like, there's right. actually an episode much later on that was written before certain events in the world happened that they're mm. like, we didn't, we didn't know that 2020 was going to be the year that it was when we wrote this. Right. And so, like, while they still air the episode, he essentially has an apology at the end of it. Okay. That's very sweet. And being like, we never want trauma for the sake of trauma to be a thing. And we're, we're growing and we're doing better. And we, everyone knew the episode was here and we didn't want to not give you the opportunity to witness it. Right. But this is something that we're not going to do ever again. Right. Which is, I just, I applaud the responsibility of it. Yeah. 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 They're very responsible. Like they're, they're, they're so good. I love Rusty Quill. They're so good. So, so does Otis. Otis Otis loves loves them. Otis loves it. And also uh, I got the best haircut of my life. And now I look like a proper eighties rocker, Eddie Munson. And I want to go date an age appropriate cheerleader. (laughs) He has a very good haircut. Thank you. Yeah. It looks really good. Thank you. So I listened to my wife. (laughs) I did not listen to the Magnus archives because body horror freaks me out. And she said, there's a lot of it. There is a lot of body horror. There is a lot. But I did listen to the unofficial Bridgerton musical and it is really good. And I was not surprised to learn that this project actually won a Grammy. 
it's it's really amazing what what this this songwriting duo was able to accomplish. Not gonna lie, I appreciate the fact that it <laughs> accidentally makes Bridgerton kind of queer, since all parts are performed by Barlow and Bear. So it is all all female voices. Uh, so even though like you know obviously the pronoun he is used and things like that, like I don't know, I, I enjoyed listening to all of Bridgerton, but everyone is a lady. <laughs> It's everything's a, better with lesbians everything yeah mm-hmm. my enjoyment of bridgerton would increase tenfold if it were queer but anyways it's a it's a great musical i just saw that they're getting sued by netflix after netflix had originally endorsed them so i hope it all goes well there uh because i think it's really good and i would love to see it adapted on stage at one point because uh, it's a it's a solid musical i think they did great I recommend it. Hopefully it's still on Spotify and not taken down because of the lawsuit. Next time on Once Upon a Rewatch, when we return from our mid-season hiatus. After Rumpelstiltskin sacrificed his life to stop Peter Pan from enacting another curse, Regina obliterated her original curse, which erased Storybrooke from existence and whisked its residents back to fairytale land, leaving Emma and Henry back in the land without magic with no memories of Storybrooke. But all is not well back in the enchanted forest when Hook comes calling on Emma in New York City in an attempt to jog her memories so that she can once again help her fairy tale family and friends out of a desperate situation. Thank you for tuning in to Once Upon a Rewatch. We are the Narrators 3. The moral of this episode is, this all could have been avoided if you didn't eat your son into a hole. Talk fairy tales with us on anchor.fm slash once upon a rewatch. Tweet us at once upon rewatch. Participate in episodic polls on Instagram at once upon rewatch. Follow us at once upon a rewatch.tumblr.com. If you enjoy once upon a rewatch, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your platform of choice. The artwork for our podcast was by Lychee Ruru. We want to say a very special thank you to the master of free music, Kevin McLeod. Our intro music is Frost Waltz, and our outro music is Fairytale Waltz. This podcast uses material from episode-specific pages on the Once Upon a Time wiki at Fandom and is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License. And remember, all plot devices come with a price. In present-day storybook, in the prawn... In the prawn, prawn shop. shop. In, in the, the prawn shop. Where you just eating prawns. Oh my god. Seafood buffet. Okay. But the way Regina. Oh, 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 oh. Sorry, we had an opinion. Opinions. <laughs> Henra and Emmy. And Emmy. Henra and Emmy. Henra and Emmy. Henra. Henra. That's that's the lost princess of the She-Ra. <laughs> <laughs> the power of Grayskull. I shall find you.